thank you for downloading Business Matters live on the BBC World Service five days a week at 8am Singapore time and 8pm New York time. It's Midnight GMT. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing. This is Business Matters on the BBC World Service. We're connecting the time zones. Today we're live in London and Silicon Valley. Coming up on the programme today, one of the most senior figures in the US Senate charged with bribery and corruption, a move that could alter the delicate balance of power in Congress. He's probably going to have to step down as the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Difficult to see how he goes forward as a power player in the United States Senate. Also, Thailand lifts martial law after almost a year. Could a move towards normality help the faltering economy? And the end of milk quotas in Europe. So will overproduction refill the milk lakes once again? That's Business Matters here on the BBC, coming up after the latest BBC News. BBC News with Stuart McIntosh. Fighting has intensified in Yemen's second city, Aden, as Houthi rebels try to seize control from local militia fighters. Eyewitnesses in Aden report intense rebel shelling, rebel snipers on rooftops and bodies in the streets. There's increasing concern about the number of casualties as the rebel advance continues, despite more than a week of airstrikes on Houthi forces by a Saudi-led coalition. Frank Gardner has more. What we're hearing is that an armoured force together with fighters on foot, have entered Hormaksar. They haven't yet taken full control of the whole of Aden, but Aden is closer now to falling than it's ever been since, since the Houthis began their push right back in September last year. And I think it's pretty hard to see how they can stop that now. If it's confirmed, it means they've really got control of all the major cities in the western half of Yemen, and they've got control of the most important bit of the country. California has introduced emergency water restrictions across the state for the first time in its history to combat four years of drought. The governor, Jerry Brown, aims to cut consumption by 25%. Peter Bowes reports from Los Angeles. Standing on a patch of grass in the Sierra Nevada mountain range, which is usually covered with several feet of snow, Governor Jerry Brown announced the first mandatory water restrictions in California history. The snowpack accounts for a third of the state's water supply. This year, water levels are down to about 5% of normal for the beginning of April. A winter with relatively little rain and unusually warm weather at the start of the year has made matters worse. According to Governor Brown... It's a different world. We have to act differently, he said. International talks on Iran's nuclear programme will continue into Thursday. Negotiators say although progress has been made, an outline agreement has not yet been reached. A White House spokesman, Josh Earnest, said the extensions would end if the negotiators stopped making progress. I think our approach to these conversations hasn't changed, which is that as long as we are in a position of convening serious talks that are making progress, that we would not arbitrarily or abruptly end them. But if we are in a situation where we sense that the talks have stalled, then yes, the United States uh, and the international community uh, is prepared to walk away. The White House says President Obama has spoken to Nigeria's president-elect, Muhammadu Bari, 
and the outgoing leader, Good Luck Jonathan, to commend them for their leadership during the presidential election. Mr Buhari has offered his assurance to foreign governments that Nigeria will become a more forceful and constructive player in the global fight against terrorism, drugs and financial fraud. You're listening to the latest world news from the BBC. A United Nations report says the flow of foreign fighters joining groups such as Al-Qaeda and Islamic State is higher than it has ever been and poses an immediate and long-term threat to global security. Our UN correspondent Nick Bryant has more. Syria and Iraq had become a veritable international finishing school for extremists, it said. Foreign fighters were also heading to Libya, Afghanistan, Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia and the Philippines. Worldwide, the number of foreign fighters had increased by 71% between mid-2014 and March this year. The panel of experts observed that the globalization of al-Qaeda and Islamic State had created a deepening array of transnational networks. They warned that those who eat together and bond together can bomb together. The fast food chain McDonald's is raising the wages of 90,000 of its workers in the United States following months of pressure from campaigners. From New York, Michelle Fleury has the latest. McDonald's is raising the pay of its American employees to at least $1 above the legal minimum wage, which varies from state to state. This means that by next year, its average restaurant worker will earn more than $10 an hour. The decision doesn't affect staff at its many franchises. About 90% of its restaurants in the US are independently owned. But this could prompt them to do more. In recent months, McDonald's has been the target of campaigners pushing for better pay and work conditions. This raise still falls short of the increase they'd wanted. Researchers in Ecuador have announced the discovery of a new species of frog which can change its skin from spiny to smooth within minutes. The tiny amphibian, measured about two centimetres long, was found in the forests of the Andes. The scientists said it's taken six years to identify and they're still working to try to understand how the frog's skin works. That's the BBC News. Hello and welcome to Business Matters. I'm Roger Hearing. Coming up on today's programme, one of the most senior Democrat senators in the US Congress is charged with bribery. Also, the military government in Thailand ends martial law. Will it be enough to renew confidence in the Thai economy? And how much milk can a farm produce? Well, Europe has removed the restrictions, but how will farmers adapt to the change? There's great opportunities for dairy farming at the moment. We've just got to think about the market. We've got to know our cost of production. And if we can see a profit on it, we will grow our business. And I'll be joined throughout the programme by two guests, Alison Van Diggelen, host of the Fresh Dialogues radio show, who's joining us from Silicon Valley, and Tony Nash of Delta Economics. Now, normally with us in Singapore, but a special occasion has come all the way here to London and is with me in the studio, and welcome to both of you. But let's start with events in Washington, because Robert Menendez, one of the most senior figures in the US Senate, the Democrat senator from New Jersey, and he's a ranking member of the Foreign Policy, Banking and Finance Committees, and a leading thinker on major policy issues. Well, now he's been arrested and charged with corruption, the first such case in more than seven years. It's a big embarrassment for the man, of course, his party and for Congress. The senator himself, however, is maintaining his innocence. For nearly three years, I've lived uh, under a Justice Department cloud. And today I'm outraged that this cloud has not been lifted. I'm outraged that prosecutors 
at the Justice Department were tricked into starting this investigation three years ago with false allegations by those who have a political motive to silence me. But I will not be silenced. Well, more on this is coming in uh, by the moment. In fact, it does now seem that the senator has stepped down from the Foreign Relations Committee, which is quite a significant move. But just before all that, I managed to get through to talk about this to Ken Vogel of Politico.com. This is a case that the uh, federal prosecutors have been working on for when Senator Menendez was running for re-election in 2012. At the time, his defenders said this is purely a political case intended to weaken his re-election. Clearly, though, that's not the case. He was reelected, and now they're bringing the case. It appears to be a very strong case, including 14 federal corruption charges, including bribery, which is a big deal because there's a very high burden of proof for that. It's almost uh, assuredly going to go to a, uh, a trial, which is, is really going to make things complicated for the senator. He's probably going to have to step down from his uh, chairmanship, uh, rather, as the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Difficult to see how he goes forward as, as a power player in the United States Senate. On the, on the case itself, it's to do with a donor, isn't it? Yeah, he was uh, an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor in, in, in Miami, south uh, southern Florida, with whom the senator had a years-long personal relationship. They uh, both consider one another close friends, federal prosecutors alleging that Senator Menendez accepted about a million dollars worth of gifts from this guy, including airfare on this guy's private plane back and forth to the Dominican Republic, golf outing, steak dinners, money, ironically, for uh, Senator Menendez's defense fund in this very case. So this is all sort of come full circle and uh, expose, I think, you know, some stuff that is in many ways sort of the, the type of, uh, you know, alleged corruption that's in plain sight, which is the dealings that donors have with politicians all the time. Now, as you mentioned, there is a political dimension to this, because if he does go, have to go to trial, he'll have to step aside in all probability. And then the governor, Chris Christie, has the right to nominate uh, a replacement, and, and almost certainly that will be a Republican, which would change the maths in the Senate, wouldn't it? Menendez is kind of main claim to fame. And the reason why he's in the news other than this case right now is because he's actually a critic to Obama's right on a lot of foreign policy type issues, including the administration's efforts to reach a, a deal with Iran. Menendez is a critic of that. He sort of comes down more on the right of Obama. So, you know, you may find a, a Republican who would be more to the right, but on some of these issues, he's not exactly a party line Democrat. But in some of the things like uh, the the moves towards uh, other measures involved, and I think there's some uh, abortion language that uh, some Republicans want to get into certain measures, uh, that kind of thing might, I suppose, become more difficult. Republicans already have the majority in the United States Senate as well as the United States House, both of which are seen as a real impediment to the Obama administration in any efforts domestically or internationally. So it's not like this is going to significantly shift the balance of power. But I think it is notable because it does bring in a lot of other Democratic officials, including Senate uh, Democratic leader Harry Reid, who just announced his retirement. He actually worked with Menendez to try to uh, dial back a federal government investigation into this donor, uh, into this donor's Medicaid billing. So uh, there's the potential for more embarrassment for Democrats beyond just Menendez. And of course, one should say, I mean, it's far from normal or usual for a ranking uh, U.S. senator to face this kind of of uh, police action. 
Yeah, that's right. The last time that we saw something like this was in 2008 with the now late uh, former Senator Ted Stevens from Alaska. That case was actually something of a debacle where the prosecutors ended up admitting inappropriate techniques and that ended up the case being dropped. That was seen as, as something of an embarrassment for the Department of Justice. And there were some real questions about whether it would hinder uh, potential future public corruption investigations. Obviously, now, a few years later, we see that it hasn't. And this is a very bold, very aggressive investigation, a very uh, ambitious indictment. Ken Vogel there of Politico.com. I should say this is a developing story. In fact, now it seems that uh, Senator Menendez has not stepped down from the Foreign Relations Committee, but he's stepped down as a ranking member, i.e. leading member of that particular committee. So I say things changing as we speak. Alison Van Diggelen there in California, all the way over the other side of the country. But I mean, this is, well, apart from the else, it's pretty embarrassing for the whole political establishment that this is going on, isn't it? Absolutely. I think uh, government corruption at any level, it weakens uh, the whole um, public trust, it weakens democracy. Uh, we, we should um, add that he hasn't been convicted of anything as yet. These he are hasn't charges. been convicted, but, but my view is um, there's uh, no smoke without fire, Roger. Well, we shall see what happens on that. Uh, Tony <laughs> Nash, uh, I mean, you know, this is your neck of the woods as well. So I mean, sure. what do you make of it? Well, public trust in, in, the, in Congress is pretty low anyway. Uh, so, you know, I believe everyone's innocent until proven guilty. And uh, but this, uh, you know, with Harry Reid stepping down recently and there was some influence, um, uh, misappropriate influence peddling uh, uh, allegations toward him as well. So I think for most Americans, this is embarrassing. It's not surprising. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll leave it there for the moment and go to a part of the world where the politics is very different. Um, Thailand. Now, it's had martial law for almost a year, and now it's being lifted. There are still special security rules in place, and there's still the same general in charge who seized power, of course, last May. He intends to implement a clause in the interim constitution that critics say gives him unchecked authority over all three branches of government and absolves him of any legal responsibility for his actions. But the symbolism, at least, of lifting martial law, something could help revive an economy that has had a pretty rough time, and certainly more so since the coup last May. As I heard from our Bangkok correspondent, Jonathan Head. Well, there's been a lot of pressure on them to do that, really, from quite early after the coup, because it has some very immediate practical effects. Martial law sounds very old-fashioned. It sounds like the military's in charge, which it is. The law they've invoked is, is about a century old, and it gives very sweeping powers to the army in terms of trying people, detaining them. Um, it has a, a direct impact on tourism, because it gets harder to get travel insurance. Uh, but more broadly, the business community feels that a country under martial law is simply not going to attract investment, that people are always going to be nervous about what its prospects are. In reality, though, uh, what the military has done is lift the, the, the rather antiquated martial law provisions that it imposed around the time of the coup and replace them with a new law that it's included in its own interim constitution that actually gives... General Prayut, he's now the Prime Minister, the man who led the coup, in some ways more sweeping powers than he had before. So in human rights terms, frankly, very little has changed, and some human rights organisations argue that things are actually potentially worse, although he's promised not to use the more extreme powers he's been given. In business terms, well, tourism's already started to pick up a bit anyway from last year. It may be enough, this, to sort of ease some of the, the problems with insurance. 
But more broadly, I, I don't think it's going to have a, a long-term impact on business confidence. There are all sorts of reasons why Thailand's economy is in the doldrums, not all of them to do with the coup. This is not going to make a, a particularly big psychological change. It's more, I think, for appearance sake than anything else. Well, how badly off is the economy? How, how badly functioning is it at the moment? It's got some very severe problems. Uh, many of them are simply cyclical. I mean, Thailand is suffering from the headwinds that have hit the Chinese economy, the, the falling demand for commodities, uh, the general falling uh, of demand as t China's economy slows down from the big Chinese manufacturers. Thailand is a huge manufacturer of, of things like electronic components, for example. Uh, demand for those, and they're the kind of components that have largely become commoditized now, like to hard drives they've really fallen. These are things that would have happened without a military coup. But the political turmoil that Thailand was suffering before the coup has also had a massive effect on domestic demand. Uh, indebtedness, domestic household indebtedness, is very high in Thailand. And people are frankly just very, very uncertain about the future. And there are real problems about long-term trends that Thailand's suffering from. It's simply becoming less competitive. Wages have gone up, but it's not particularly efficient as economy. Education levels haven't progressed as fast as some neighbouring countries like Vietnam, for example, or Malaysia. So there are long-term trends that, frankly, any government would be struggling with. I mean, growth last year, there's hardly any growth at all, frankly. This year, the economy was supposed to bounce back, but the government is steadily downgrading its expectations. It's aiming for something a little less than 4% at the moment, which for this region is not a lot of growth when you had a, an effect of slump the year before. So these are very big problems. I, I think long-term, one of the issues for this government is that it, it is a temporary military government, and there are going to be no big investment decisions about Thailand, frankly, until people see whether they can resolve these long-standing political differences uh, that have more or less paralysed the country in policy terms for close to a decade now. Well, you say a temporary military government. Is there any sign of the government making plans to hand back to democracy? They've always said they will. They've always said they're temporary. The dates keep slipping. The problem is that the military and its supporters, who really are from one side of the political divide, what they want to do is redesign a political system that would prevent the return to power of former Prime Minister Taksin Shinawat or his supporters. Remember, it was his sister Yingluck who was in office when the coup happened. Her government was in office. Now, his parties have won every election for the last 15 years. They've got a kind of a hold on the populist parts of the north and northeast of the country. Fixing that is going to require basically uh, only a semi-democratic system. It's going to be very divisive. It is a difficult job designing a constitution that can do that. And so although the military, I think it, it certainly will hand back to democratic government because it knows it can't stay that long. It's struggling even now to govern. It's not very effective at it. But the date does keep slipping because they've given themselves such an enormous challenge in trying to redesign an entire political system. Jonathan Head speaking to me there from Bangkok Airport. Let's bring ourselves right up to date with all the latest news with Stuart McIntosh. Thanks, Roger. There's been intense fighting for control of Yemen's second city, Aden, where casualties are mounting. Emergency water restrictions have been imposed across California for the first time in the state's history. The US Secretary of State is to stay in Switzerland for another day to try to conclude a deal on Iran's nuclear programme. Here's the story everybody's talking about. A new frog species has been discovered in Ecuador, which researchers say has a unique ability to change its skin texture. There. That's the kind of news you hear on the BBC. Yeah. Anyway, thanks very much indeed, Stuart. Now let's uh, do a slightly more formal welcome to my guests, who you've actually already heard from, of course, Alison Van Diegelen, who is uh, with us from Silicon Valley. So, Alison, I'll say good evening to you. 
Good evening, Roger. Good to hear your voice. And good to have you with us. And, well, for one night only, over here in the studio with me in London, our very own Tony Nash, who is normally, of course, uh, from Singapore. So, Tony, it's some ghastly time in the middle of the night and we prevailed upon you to come into the studio. So apologies for that. But uh, whatever it is, you're extremely welcome. Thank you very much. Now, uh, let's consider the issue of milk. I know it's not perhaps one that's foremost in either of your minds at the moment, but it's a big issue here in Europe because after a very considerable time, the issue of quotas, people being limited to how much milk they can produce, has been attacked by the EU and indeed quotas have gone. The cow is at the centre of some none-too-peaceful battles over European agricultural policy, and that's the way it's been over many years. EU subsidies led to, originally, the infamous milk lakes and butter mountains as production outstripped demand. In 1984, quotas were introduced to limit how much milk farmers could sell, but from today, they're being abandoned. The BBC's Sarah Swaddling has been down on the farm in the southwest of England to gauge the likely impact there. I'm in Somerset in the southwest of England, and dawn is just breaking over the lush green pastures of this dairy farm. Already, though, the place is a hive of activity because it's morning milking time for the cows. It's also a new dawn for the farmer here, David Cotton, because from today his milk production is no longer limited by European Union quotas. The black and white cows are just streaming slowly past me towards the gleaming high-tech milking parlour. Five, eight, five. Every cow... Nine, zero, five. ..has a, a, an ear tag in its ear so that when they come into the parlour, they're recognised. It's all very high-tech. Is that typical of a UK dairy farm? Getting more and more so. The technology is moving on so fast these days. This is what we call a swing-over parlour. So we have 18 milking units. So while 18 cows are milking... Three, eight, five. Another 18 cows are being prepared for milking. We're following the cows out of the milking parlour, down a track. In front of us, the cows are grazing away very peacefully. They've wasted no time in getting out and getting their heads down to start eating the grass after milking. There's a watery, pale sun just rising. They're going out by day, which gives them a break from being in the buildings and also with the milk prices where they are, it's actually a good move to get a good yield from grass at this time of year. It's good spring grass, so it just helps keep our costs down as well. So, David, today's the day, then, that milk quotas end across Europe. What will that mean for your farm in particular? Well, it's interesting because I've been uh, farming for about 30 years and, of course, quotas came in 30 years ago. So to me, it's quite significant. It it actually means now that uh, we're farming without having to buy a licence to produce more milk. It's not something we have to worry about anymore. Other European countries are seeing the end of milk quotas as a really big opportunity for their farmers. For example, Ireland has an ambition to increase its milk production by 50%. Yes, it does, and and the likes of Denmark and Holland as well, because agriculture plays a big part in their economy. So they're saying, right, what markets can we find? So they're encouraging their farmers to grow, and they're now looking for new markets for their products. Does that mean that 
potentially world prices might go down or markets like the UK might get flooded with imported dairy products? We might see more imports of dairy products in the UK, but actually, because it's more about world trade these days and the, the food goes to where the market is, you'll find that actually I think China, Vietnam and North Africa will be a better market than the UK. I'm a little distracted because all the while that we've been talking, the cows have been creeping closer and closer and now I've got one curious individual chewing at the bottom of my coat. And if you listen carefully above the sound of the tractor in the distance, you can just hear the cows tearing at the grass. Hello. These are quite large, tall, slender black and white cows. What breed are these, David? These are all Holstein Frisians. We're an 8,000 litre dairy herd, but uh, you see Holstein Frisian herds doing 11, 12, 13,000 litres a year. They are a bit like the athletes of the dairy world. There's great opportunities for dairy farming at the moment. We've just got to think about the market, we've got to know our cost of production, and if we can see a profit on it, we will grow our business. That report from Sarah Swadling looking at the problems of agricultural production. Let me, let me come to you, Alison, briefly on that, because, I mean, it's an issue that goes into the whole nature of both farming and a kind of green economy and, and environmentalism, of, not, of trying not to overproduce, but trying, obviously, to keep the countryside, which has, in many cases, been shaped by farmers, um, in a way that, that benefits everyone. It's a problem, isn't it? It definitely is, yes. Uh, It sounds from what I've read about it today that there's going to be a lot of people are talking about the great opportunity in terms of growth and jobs, but that might be limited to the large operations rather than the small producers. And as you say, the small farmers, they're actually doing double duty. They are producing milk, but they're also looking after the countryside, if you like, maintaining that beautiful, idyllic, British countryside with the hedges and the black and white cows, as your correspondent so beautifully described. It doesn't work that way in the States, though. I mean, you know, you have these enormous farms, don't you? And just just vast, vast acreage and, and no sort of restrictions at all. Um, As far as I know, yeah, the restrictions are a lot um, more limited here, but you do have small operations. I recently visited um, a local college uh, south of Silicon Valley, and they have a small dairy operation to teach the students about dairy farming, and that was a fairly small operation, but of course, high-tech is everywhere. Of course, that's the way that the system works there. But it's very interesting that the difference is in different places, and certainly here in Britain, it's a massive issue about uh, who, who is custodian of the countryside. But let's move also on to the other story we were talking about earlier, which was uh, Thailand, because uh, Tony, of course, uh, Tony Nash here with me in the studio, vigorously nodding and indeed uh, smiling at certain things uh, that were said about uh, the progress, um, whatever progress there might be towards democracy in Thailand. Now, now Tony, this is an area you know extremely well. Mm. Do you think that when we were talking to Jonathan, he was drawing the comparison of of what happens in the economy and what happens in the politics in a way that if you loosen up, if you make the country look more attractive to investors by being more democratic, that actually has a good effect on the economy. Do you think that's actually the way it works in Thailand? I think the way that's the way it normally works. But I think investors today are incredibly sophisticated. And just to change the semantics of the situation, uh, I think most investors can see through that. And uh, institutional credibility in Thailand is seriously questioned right now and has been for the past 
you know, few years. But especially... because because of experience or because of I mean, what what what's the well, reason for that? It, it started with the floods in uh, 2011. Okay, that took out disk drive factories and automotive plants and the inability of the government to really repair a lot of the issues. Um, but with the coup last year, you know, there's a lot of cynicism in Thailand and in Southeast Asia. Uh, investors are fairly uh, fairly cynical. In Southeast Asia, there are commercials running all over about what a great, you know, investment climate Thailand is. Um, but, you know, it's really questionable whether this is, this is going to change. Now, one of the senior uh, Thai ministers, I can't remember exactly which one, was speaking last week about what a great investment environment it is. They're trying to bring taxes down to a flat tax similar to Singapore where I live. There were even statements made about moving headquarters from Singapore to Thailand. This is what he said, uh, which is very non-ASEAN. ASEAN countries are typically non-confrontational, kind of non-competitive, at least vocally. So it's it's interesting to see the political leaders uh, become, uh, at least in Thailand, become very vocal about that. Perhaps because elements of desperation, maybe, or is that... It's, it's quite possible. And, and some of the statements that have been made by senior government folks in Thailand have been a little bit belligerent, belligerent a little bit uh, kind of as if they don't get out to actually engage with the public to understand the ramifications of the things they're saying. Belligerence isn't a normal cultural thing there either, is it? No, it's very subtle. Thai culture is, is typically very subtle. Um, but that's the nature of politics there right now. Difficult times in Thailand. Mm. Thanks very much indeed, Tony. There's much more coming up here on Business Matters. Indeed, uh, Tony is going to be looking at the issue and question of what you can learn from big data, economic data, about political ideas and what might happen. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that a bit more after we take a little bit of a break for some news. Welcome back to Business Matters with me, Roger Hearing, and my guest today, uh, Alison Van Diegelen, who is joining us from uh, from Silicon Valley in California, and with me here in the studio, unusually, Tony Nash is usually with us, of course, from Singapore. Now, uh, we're going to talk about big data in just a moment, but I thought I'd better pick up with you, Alison, um, about what's happening where you are, which um, is somewhat unusual. I mean, we know California is sunny, but it's rather too sunny and not quite rainy enough. Uh, clearly at the moment, and for the first time in the state's history, you've got mandatory water restrictions. Um, how does it affect your life and what's going on there? Yes, this is uh, pretty big news here. Um, Governor Brown went up into the Sierra this morning and he stood where normally there would be about five feet of snow and he was on grass so that was such a, a powerful image to just relay to people the extent of the problem. 2013 was the driest on record in the state. 2014 was the warmest. So it was like a one-two punch for the environment. And finally, he's getting round to doing something. I think a lot of people, including myself, are a little bit like, why, why didn't you start something a year ago? This, we saw this coming. And what does it actually look like? I mean, do you, do you notice the lakes um, ebbing away? Do you notice the rivers drying up? I mean, what's it like? Absolutely. There are a lot of reservoirs in this area uh, where I am in uh, South uh, San Francisco Bay Area. And a lot of them are dry or um, completely dry or very close to being dry. Um, a lot of... Um, Locals are letting their grass go brown. There, there are a lot of visible ways of seeing this. However, 
you're also seeing beautifully green verdant grass on golf courses and that kind of thing. So there is, you could say, a cover-up going on. So as I say, this is long overdue. Um, there really needed to have been uh, mandates before this, but at least there's something going to happen now. Um, Governor Brown is calling for a reduction in water use by of 25% for the next year. But he can't make rain. Is there any sign of it coming? No, I, our rain season is almost over. We're now in April and uh, the majority of our rain falls between September and March. So it's not looking likely. We may get one uh, one or two light showers, but the experts are saying that uh, that window of opportunity for the, a big storm is has passed or is, is almost closed. So... It's yeah, going to be a long, hot summer. <laughs> it is, it is well, indeed, yes. Mm, interesting, interesting. And of course, a lot of people will be crunching all the data and looking back over, uh, well, probably about 100 years, maybe more of data, just to check and see um, what happened and how it happened and maybe the consequences, which brings us rather neatly, uh, if slightly in a contrived way, to the whole issue of data itself. Now, Tony, you have, well, you were telling me a little earlier, you've been looking at data and specifically, actually, some data to do with arms sales, I believe, and you've been interestingly drawing some conclusions as to how that relates to what may happen politically in Europe. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving it deliberately vague. You tell me what you found out and what you think it means. Sure. So we, we are a, um, a big data firm. We cycle through about 11, well, Delta Economics is a, a big data firm. We cycle through about 11 billion data points every month as we do our forecasts. And we've been looking at correlations of economic data with political stability, um, and we've come to some really interesting findings. This allows us to do discrete monthly forecasts for every country to understand political stability within those countries. So most of this type of research is happening at an academic level. I don't know of another commercial firm that's actually doing this in economics, which is surprising. You'd think economics and big data would go hand in hand, but actually it doesn't happen with anybody else. Now, what we've found, uh, say, in Europe uh, is uh, actually later in the year in Eastern Europe, we're looking for some uh, some activity. But specifically to my area of the world in Asia – um, as we look, for example, at the South China Sea, right now you see the Philippines starting to rebuild some bases on uh, some of the atolls and shoals in uh, the South China Sea. And we're looking at, say, October, November being a difficult period between China and the Philippines. Okay? But that, I suppose someone could look at it and say, well, just the way things go generally, that is an area where disputes are unresolved. And maybe anyone could say, well, perhaps there's going to be some trouble there. But, but you reckon it's, it's more granular than that. You can actually it's, predict it. It's very much more granular. And this is the, the promise of big data. And this is, these are the kind of things that we can do. So, for example, going back to our Thailand discussion, actually the import of arms and other elements within the arms supply chain rose by 40% in the three months before the Thai coup. Okay. And because we forecast 12,000 industry sectors every month, we can look at uh, hundreds of elements. Actually, it's about 150 elements within that supply chain and understand when they're rising and falling. Uh, And so this is what allows us to say, look, Philippines, China in kind of October, November of 2015 will be a very sensitive time for those places. And we do that for 93 countries and 
Actually, we do that for about 200 countries, but on a regular basis, we do that for 93 countries. Now, there'll be a lot of people in Europe, it's no secret, uh, somewhat nervous about what they think um, Mr. Putin in Russia uh, may be doing next. There's been a lot of speculation about that. Now, you were saying you think or at least there could be a suggestion of what might happen on this basis. Can, can you fill that in a bit? Well, you know, it's. I think Vladimir Putin's activities, and you know, I spent a lot of years studying Russian Russian politics, and and uh, it's it's no mystery that he's you know looking abroad, and and it's it's no surprise that uh, you know he he's not afraid to take action, and and the type of say war and engagement that they've undertaken is 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 brilliant actually from that perspective. Um, and brilliant so, tactically and strategically, rather tactically and strategically, it's not necessarily for the goodwill of mankind. But but I won't necessarily name the country. I won't necessarily name the the month. But we are looking for more action from Russia later in the year, um, and I think that is uh, a bit of a cause for concern. Um, and a lot of that assumption is based on again the sale of weapons. It's it's looking at supply chains and it's looking and the accuracy of our forecast Roger is actually quite high. So, you know, for us to see this and for us to see some of the seasonal stability and monthly kind of instability of of this information uh is uh is remarkable actually. And so, you know, again, this is really what big data is supposed to be about. Retailers have been using this on their customers for a long time to understand habits but it hasn't been used in a macro sense with this level of precision, uh, as far as we know, for, for quite some time or, or ever. Now, we know, obviously, your company is doing this. There must be other companies out there doing the same thing because big data is, is available now, isn't it? Big data is often talked about, but it's referred to in terms of the volume of data. But what big data is about is integrating data sets, Okay. And so what we've done is integrated our own proprietary data as well as other data to make sense of, uh, again, of billions of data points, okay? And our global model is about to double in size as we extend some of our capability. And with that, you know, obviously we have to be careful about our correlations from an economic perspective and other things. But with that, it allows us more robust underpinnings to the conclusions that we're coming to the in- and the assertions that we're making. As long as you select the right sort of data. Of course, that, that's right. And which it seems to be, in a way, is perhaps the Achilles heel, because you might assume that a certain area of data is, is what's going to be the, the main thing, but it may not be. Well, but we're running millions of correlations, literally millions of correlations, to understand what's happening uh, with these different areas that we're studying. And so we are data geeks. I mean, that really is what it, what it comes down to. And we appreciate and, and are a bit paranoid about some of the assertions that we're making. This model has been under construction for quite some time, years, actually. And you've had some success in, in the prediction business. Absolutely. We, we predicted the instability in Ukraine to the month. Um, and there are a number of other things that we've looked at in the past and, and predicted quite accurately. Well, I think you might start getting some clients coming perhaps from uh, the <laughs> government side and uh, certain worried governments in Europe. That would be very interesting. Alison, I mean, listening to this, it, we, we've talked before on the programme, I think I've talked about it with you, on the issue of big data and how it can be used. And clearly Silicon Valley, where, where you operate, is a place where they make the machinery that, that kind of does these things. Um, is, is it a key concern? Are people talking a lot about big data there? Oh, yeah. Big data is a big issue, definitely, in Silicon Valley. I was at a conference last month, and it was all about deep learning, which is a facet of 
big data. What does deep learning mean? Deep learning is basically uh, programming machines so that they can teach themselves, so that they can learn like a human does. So they're they're looking at how does the brain work with neural networks and how can we teach machines. So it's a form of artificial intelligence, if you like. But they're using deep learning too in uh, self-driving cars and in all sorts of um, cutting-edge technology. They're using this deep learning to... You know, you've got the big data. It's like, how can we use that to make uh, better choices, to predict the future? And whether that's in politics or economics or in new technology trends, all these um, aspects are, are making a brave new world, if you like. It certainly sounds like Tony, I think you wanted to come back on that. Yeah, th- that's exactly the type of model that we're working on. It's a neural network artificial intelligence model where these are not stagnant correlations. These are correlations that change organically as uh, the global political environment and the global economy change. And that's the really interesting part about, uh, about big data and about some of these, uh, these new ways of approaching things. These are not static. Uh, and, and this is one of the really interesting things that we've seen coming out of academia and Silicon Valley. These are not static formulas. Uh, these are... Um, algorithms that change and learn and grow. So exactly what Alison is talking about. And, and do it without necessarily human intervention, or at least that's right. And, and that, which again has its worrying aspects, but at least it's it's a way of of making it very fast. I suppose there's an analogy maybe with what we've heard about in uh, share markets uh, and equity trading going on at this incredibly fast rate and feeding the data back. And is it going to have the same effect, perhaps, on analysis of current events, maybe? Well, the, the, we, we actually do that as well. So we advise funds and financial services communities on the movements in, in different, say, asset classes on a monthly basis. Um, and so the predictive modeling or predictive characteristics of what we're doing has an impact on, say, commodity prices or currency pairs or equity markets. And we're using this for politics. We're also using this for the investment community as well. The era of big data is upon us already, and indeed deep learning by machines. And I, I have to say I am slightly concerned about that. But, uh, Tony, you look pretty confident, so perhaps we'll assume all is well. Anyway, for the moment, let's take a break and uh, get the latest headlines from Stuart McIntosh. They'll never get a machine like you. Ooh, you wait. Those headlines then. There's been intense fighting for control of Yemen's second city, Aden, where casualties are mounting. Emergency water restrictions have been imposed across California for the first time in the state's history. The US Secretary of State is staying in Switzerland for another day to try to conclude a deal on Iran's nuclear programme. And the fast food chain McDonald's is raising the wages of 90,000 of its workers in the United States, but it doesn't apply to independently owned franchises and they account for about 90% of McDonald's branches in the US. Speaking of money, the Nikkei 225 is currently at 113 points up at 19,148, and a dollar is worth 120 yen. Stuart, thanks. Now it's that moment when we link up with one of our reporters today, the BBC's Jonah Fisher, who's on the line from Yangon in Myanmar. Um, Jonah, um, well, I suppose one thinks Myanmar and Burma, the history really, almost the entire history, recent history of the country, seems to have been involved in many little conflicts all around the country with different ethnic groups primarily. But now there seems to be an element of a, of a peace breaking out. Well, that's the hope. This week, 
the negotiators from 16 of those different ethnic armed groups that have been negotiating with the government uh, agreed on a draft agreement, a ceasefire agreement, if you like, uh, with with the army and, and with the government. So there was a, a real sense of optimism, optimism here. The, the Burmese president, Thane Sein, came to Yangon, witnessed this signing. And in theory, it could be a very big moment uh, for Myanmar. It could be... Uh, a decisive moment, if you like, in the step towards uh, lasting peace here. And many people are saying it could also turn into the greatest legacy of Thane Sein's time in office. The big caveat, of course, is, firstly, it's not been finally signed. These ethnic groups have to go back uh, and agree amongst themselves that this is actually what they want. Secondly, of course, with any ceasefire, will people abide by it? There, there are several conflicts which are still pretty, act- pretty active at the moment, and those are from armed groups that are actually part of this process. And thirdly, there are some uh, rebel armed groups who are not part of this process whatsoever. The most active conflict in Myanmar at the moment is in an area called Kokan, which is uh, near the border with China. And the Kokan rebels have not been invited to these talks. The Burmese army seems convinced that it can defeat them militarily. So at the moment, uh, that war has been going on for two months now uh, and looks like continuing for for, for considerably longer than that. Uh, It's not part of this process. So uh, an an optimistic moment, a potential for something big to come out of this. uh, And and to be honest, people needed some good news uh, here, here in Myanmar, but it's not a done deal yet. And it won't include everyone. And with the good news on one hand, perhaps bad news on the other, suggestion perhaps a return to the bad old days with a, la- a number, a rise in the number of political prisoners, students being um, imprisoned for protesting. What, what's going on? Uh, that, that's right. Last week I was at court in a place called Letpadan where uh, 65 students were charged with a series of uh, different offences which could. Uh, end up with them being in jail for as long as 10 years each for taking part in a demonstration that that turned pretty violent. Now, the fear which is being expressed by activist groups here is that the way the students have been treated in particular marks a return, as you said, to the to the dark old days here that, uh, the, that, the, that the government here isn't going to tolerate the sort of public expressions which we've seen over the last three, four years of, of reforms here in Myanmar, that they're going to uh, take a much stiffer line. We know that the, the laws in Myanmar haven't, haven't changed at all, really, through this reform process. So there's some pretty arcane, pretty repressive laws on the book. The only thing which is stopping uh, that being expressed is how those laws are uh, administered and how they're used. At the moment, it seems like uh, the local authorities, uh, the police have taken a step back, if you like, and are saying, well, those laws are on the books. We don't want these demonstrations to be happening. And if it happens, we're going to lock people up. So from a... From a a few months ago, we'd have said there are just a handful of political prisoners uh, here in, in prison at the moment. Uh, well, that number is now rising pretty rapidly with, with an increasing number of students now, now waiting to be prosecuted. And I guess the nature of whether that becomes worse or better is going to depend on the nature of the government. And you've got a general election looming just seven months away. Um, is, it, is it actually going to happen? I mean, the preparations well seem to be a little dilatory. Well, there are there are plenty of observers who who doubt whether this election is going to happen. The the constitution here, ha, here does have various provisos, which means that almost on a whim, if you like, uh, the election could be delayed almost indefinitely. But yes, in theory, it's due to take place here at the start of November. It will be uh, the first properly contested election here uh, for a for a generation. 
Aung San Suu Kyi's party, of course, will compete in that election for the very first time. Here in Yangon, we've just started to see the first signs that this election is going to take place. There are some voter lists that have been put up uh, in some of the townships, uh, and, and we're starting to see some indications in terms of uh, the election commission talking about uh, observers being allowed to come in from, 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 from Europe and from the West uh, to have a look at that election. Of course, uh, people will be looking very closely at it to, to see that it is a free and fair, fair election. Uh, the election that was held here in 2010, well, it wasn't properly contested and, and many people regard the result in that election as a bit of a sham. So uh, it will be a highly scrutinised election and I think people are, are quietly optimistic uh, that if it does take place, that they seem to be relatively open to having observers come here and see for themselves whether it's fair or not. And I suppose the absolute question to a lot of outsiders with regard to an election is the extent to which Aung San Suu Kyi will be allowed to, and her party will be allowed to take part. Is it clear what the status is going to be at that stage? Well, I think it's pretty clear that they will be allowed to take part. The problem which has always existed here in the, over the last few years is that even if Aung San Suu Kyi's party wins, uh, the constitution would prevent her from becoming president. So we might well see a situation where her party, the National League for Democracy, wins potentially a landslide, dominates parliament, but the, the, the sort of the towering figure, the person who has delivered this victory, if you like, is not able to come, become president. And that is a scenario which is scaring investors who are thinking about uh, coming, in, coming into Myanmar. Uh, and it's also, I think, cr creating a sort of an atmosphere of instability which we're seeing at the moment because people don't really know what might happen in this, that situation. And whenever there's instability, whenever there's the potential for demonstrations on the streets, well, that also provides an opportunity uh, for the army to step in and say, we've got to take power again to restore stability. Jenna, thanks so much. Jenna Fisher, they're live on the line from Yangon. Now, let's move on to something very radically different and indeed reflecting a radical time. Now, apologies to those of you out there who are, oh, let's say, under 25. You may not recognise this, but an awful lot of people will. A long, long time ago I can still remember how that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. Oh, it's so tempting to let it go on, but I won't. American Pie, of course, the 1971 hit by Don McLean, a song that's had huge meaning for a whole generation in America and well beyond. And the 16 original pages of handwritten lyrics and type drafts are up for auction at Christie's in New York. And they're expected to make as much as $1.5 million. Well, I asked Rolling Stone's associate editor, Andy Green, if it was a surprise anyone was prepared to pay that much for, well, some scraps of paper. I'm not really surprised because the song means so much to so many people of that generation. It's arguably one of the most famous songs of the entire 70s. And it's, it's a song about nostalgia. It's a song about the 60s and so many people that are wealthy now have a strong connection to that period that it makes sense that there's somebody out there that wants to, to spend a fortune to own it. Who do you think might be out there bidding? I mean, we're talking some very big names, do you think? It's hard to say because they tend to be anonymous, but, but these things go for a lot of money because they are one of a kind. And this one in particular, it's, 
it is like a rough draft of this hugely famous song. So there'll be one person that's able to really know the whole story of, of this song, which has always been a, a huge mystery. Well, I was going to pick up on that because it is an odd song in a lot of ways. I mean, very iconic, but mm-hmm. there have been many debates about what on earth it does mean. Uh, what, what's your take? I think it's pretty straightforward. I think it's, it's a reflection on this decade where America lost its innocence. It's a guy in 1971 that's looking back at the past 12 years or so and just sort of starting with the day the music died, which was when Buddy Holly died, and just going through the 60s from Kennedy's death on through everything. And on almost every line is an allusion to a band or a current event or something in politics. It's just a look back at the 60s. Don McLean, he's refused to ever talk about it. Well, that's, that's the point, isn't it? He's helped the mystery in a way. Yeah, I think he didn't mean to, but he's refused to say anything about it besides talking about the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, that he has sort of spread this mystery through the decades, and now is a chance to sort of solve it by reading, you know, page after page of his rough draft. <laughs> I suppose, because what struck me, there's references to Lenin, Marx, James Dean. I mean, it's, it's more than just the 60s, isn't it? I guess it goes back to the 50s also, and, and there's so much speculation. Is the jester Bob Dylan, is Jack Flash Mick Jagger? You know, it's been debated in dorm rooms and everything for 40 years now. So it's just one of these things that doesn't go away. Would you like to own this? I don't have much desire for that kind of pop culture history. I like to read all of his lyrics. I think that would be interesting. But to own it, I just don't see the value in that, really. Because you know? I guess it gets put in a frame on the wall in the end, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's like 30 pages or something, so that's a lot of frames. Mm, a lot of money, too. Um, hmm. Alison, would you be bidding for it? I mean, had you the money? Had I the money? I, w- I would love to view it. I would love for it to go to someone who would donate it to a museum and we could all pour over these words. There's something uh, very powerful about seeing that handwritten piece. I would love to, well, to it, view maybe that. Maybe it's coming to your neck of the woods. I half wonder if one of your, you know, the internet billionaires down there might be one of these secret bidders. They're the kind of people who'd have the money and generationally probably have the interest. Yes, it, it definitely could. The The part of that story that resonates with me today, of course, because I've been all about the California drought today, is the line where he says, I drove my Chevy to the levee and the levee was dry. Oh, yes. Now, of course, some people say that's about <laughs> the death of the American dream, but I'm taking that as a literal meaning today, which, of course, resonates very strongly in California. Well, it, starts getting, it starts getting like holy writ after a while, where you read whatever you want into the lines. I mean, Exactly. I, I mean, Tony, Tony, there we are. And while Lenin read a book, on Marx, the quartet practiced in the park, and we sang dirges in the dark the day the music died. What earth is that about? Something about uh, the turn of the century, I think. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> now, you were telling me, come on, embarrass us with your age. Oh, no, no, I, I was born the year this song came out, so maybe my father would be interested in this song, but <laughs> come on. just certainly not something, and, and mm. I have to say, I didn't debate this in my dorm room. <laughs> you know, we just, was we it just, not a song? It must have been a popular song, even, surely, in your time, or okay, was it not? It was a song that my parents listened to, and it reminds me of my childhood, but, you know, it's not necessarily something that we thought deeply about the lyrics. It was just something that was kind of a youthful context for us. I yeah, guess. and you don't have the nostalgia for the period that they're talking, or in theory, that he's talking about. Aside from kind of uh, manual dial, kind of AM radios, and, uh, you know, driving around in the 70s, mm. you know, the, it, it doesn't really have that kind of pull for, at least for my generation, uh, but but maybe younger people are. I, I see people in their, say, 60s, 
and seventies buying this for kind of their last ten or twenty years to recapture. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I'm, I'm sorry to be so. Now dramatic. listen, does this not does it speak to you? I know you. I mean, you're so much younger than all of us that uh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to mention any numbers, but it does resonate with me. I'm not sure if it's from college days or since then, but it's very much an American song. And it, when you played that piece, it really touches me. And I think I, I speak for a lot of people, no matter what age they are. That is such a it's a wonderful uh, piece of music and it's a wonderful, mysterious piece of poetry. And it really is poetry when you look at the lyrics because it is, it is something... Uh, what was he on when he was writing it? Perhaps one shouldn't even inquire, I don't know. But it was uh, a <laughs> tremendous piece of music and, uh, well, I think... What else can we do? We're going to give you another touching moment there, Alison. And, uh, well, thanks to you, my thanks to Tony, and thanks to Don McLean, I suppose. Here we go. That's it. Bye-bye. This will be the day that I die. Did you write the book of love and do you For more interviews and analysis of global business, search for BBC Business Matters for our daily hour-long podcast.